Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here from a rain-sodden, windy, blustery Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller from a non-rainy, quite calm southeast London. I've got bad news for you, Richard. Uh, the w- weather's coming from the west, and uh, the blustery rain which we're suffering here will soon be with you. But okay. we've got the most exciting guest. We're completely changing our vision this week, uh, and we've got somebody who is going to give us an entirely new perspective on cricket. Perhaps you should introduce him. He certainly will. We're delighted to welcome this week James Coyne, assistant editor of The Cricketer, but he's also edited, since 2012, the section in Wisdom Cricketer's Almanac, which is the one that many readers go to immediately after the obituaries uh, and the errata, the one called Cricket Around the World. In this capacity, James has a unique knowledge of all the exotic locations where cricket is now played, and there are more and more of these each year. He's co-authored a book called Evita, Burnt Down Our Pavilion, which is a cricketing odyssey through Latin America. But a little less exotically, he plays cricket himself for Flittick Cricket Club in Bedfordshire in England. James, thank you very much for joining us. Must ask straight away, which pavilion did Evita burn down and did she do it personally? Well, hello everyone and uh, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yes, uh, well, she didn't. I, I don't think that there wasn't a smoking gun that she was necessarily there, but uh, there was a Peronist gang who went in the dark of night just after the cricket season. It does appear that they set a light to the Buenos Aires Cricket Club Pavilion, and uh, it was reported quite heavily in the English language papers in Argentina at the time, and it was mourned quite significantly. And it's if you've been to, if anyone who's listening has been to Buenos Aires, it's in the sort of lovely, sumptuous Palermo Parks region which I think was originally owned by the personal gardens of the of one of the early presidents of Argentina. Mm. And in a sort of case of amity between the British who were running a lot of the utilities and the railways and so on, he donated that field to the Buenos Aires Cricket Club. And unfortunately, that amity quite punctured, really, uh, yeah. later on when Juan Perón came to power and he made quite a lot of uh, moves to, um, how, how do I say this, extract foreign influence from or evict foreign influence from, from Argentina. And unfortunately, the uh, not, not to give away the game too much from the story in the book, but um, it ended up with, with, the, uh, with the Buenos Aires Cricket Club Pavilion being burnt down over a disagreement over the land. So that's what happened in 1947. And the full story about that is in, is in that book that's coming out next April. So I hope everyone who's listening will buy a copy. <laughs> certainly look forward to it. The, um, the Perons were very keen to involve themselves in Argentine football and to associate mm. themselves with it. There's a famous picture of Evita kicking off some important match in her very, very high heels. Um, yes. But um, obviously they never, they never took to cricket. It's very interesting because football is also an English game and there was no issues with the Peronistas supporting football. Why is it that cricket was uh, targeted and not football? Well, it's the million-dollar question of, of, of why. I mean, it, it taps into that bigger question, which is if cricket was, if anything, played more. And it actually, if you look at South America and also most other parts of the world where the British took cricket and football, cricket was played first. Um, and it has an older history. 
Um, so it's that million dollar question of why football pers- persisted while cricket didn't. Um, there's all sorts of theories about that. But I think by that point, football had absolutely endeared itself to the all pop- all sort of sectors of the population in, in Argentina and South America, whereas cricket was still the preserve, unfortunately, of the, the sort of merchant class that were uh, of Anglo-Argentines or, or, or Brits who'd only recently moved out there. So it hadn't really caught on to the same degree among the the, uh, the rest of the population. And the same can be said, actually, for rugby, I think. But rugby since then has been far more successful at building itself into the into the South American psyche. I mean, I think if you go back to the 1940s, rugby was ahead of cricket in terms of popularity by a little bit. Uh, but now it's obviously completely dwarfed it. So it, it's a theme that runs through the book and it's, it's fascinating, fascinating to every cricket person. Um, and actually, I should mention at this point a quite a humorous line about Perron, which was... Um, which I, I found when I stumbled across something Matthew Engel had written. And apparently E.W. Swanton's uh, biography, autobiography, was called A Sort of a Cricket Person. But unfortunately, once the, the uh, front cover was misprinted and it came out as A Sort of a Cricketing Peron, um, <laughs> which amused quite a few people in the press box who sort of saw illusions between E.W. Swanton and Juan Peron's. It's very interesting looking at the global analogies because, of course, De Valera in Ireland tried yeah. to do something similar with cricket, i.e. eliminate it, because I think it was associated with the English perspective on life. Mm. Well, there are other parts of the world. Um, and next week, we're going to have uh, Char- Charles Lysett, who's a great, very learned on the subject, a great Irish cricketer himself, talking about this. What other countries... Egypt, Egypt, not long after the Perons, had a nationalist um, uprising overthrew the monarchy, and they turned on cricket, didn't they, James? The um, Nasser attacked the um, Gazira, the Gazira Club, which is the home of um, Egyptian cricket. The most famous Egyptian cricketer, I'm sure you know, is um, the future actor Omar Sharif. But um, the Nasser sort of did for Egyptian cricket when he turned the Gazira Club, I think, into a youth club. Um, rather than a private cricket club. Yes, I've got a feeling that it may have even been requisitioned for a mosque at one point. But yes, I mean, I think actually after the war, in 1954, I think the Pakistanis, the touring Pakistanis, the first, and you all know about this because I'm, I'm speaking to the men that <laughs> wrote in the book. book but yes. I, think, mm. I think they actually went and played in Cairo or, or at the Gazira Club. They did? On their way mm. back. Is that right? On their way back from it? On their way, for, on their way to. On their way to. On the way right. to, yep. And they, and they had the to journey. get the boat home and they had to finish, the, they had to call it a draw or something because the, the boat had to get the boat home or something. Uh, no, um, they wanted to go right? shopping. <laughs> wanted to go shopping. <laughs> they wanted to go shopping the bazaars. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, especially during the Second World War, I mean, Jim Lake had played cricket in, in Egypt during the Second World War and actually was spotted, I think, by a couple of counties who tried to get him a deal after the war because they'd seen how good he was on the matting wickets. So yes, I mean, at the Gazira Club, it was requisitioned. And I think if when I was researching a piece I did on this for the cricketer, I came across a list of all the committee members at the Gazira Club. I can't remember the year off the top of my head, but unfortunately, all the members were British sounding. So I don't think there'd been much of an attempt to bring local Egyptians into the Gazira Club by that point. And I'm not sure quite how soon afterwards they were booted out, but I imagine it was fairly soon after the Suez crisis, I would have thought. It does raise this fascinating question, why India, which obviously wasn't very fond of the Brits in 1947, Mm. stayed with cricket, whereas Argentina, Egypt, Ireland all tried to um, mobilise against him. Mm. 
I, I've got a theory about this, and I, and I think it's because of the administration of India and the, and the garrison aspect, um, the fact that the British were there in a military sense in parts of the country, uh, whereas they weren't in South America and they weren't in other parts. Uh, I mean, obviously in Egypt they were to a point, so that's a bit more surprising. But certainly in South America, they were never. It was never a colony as such. It was yes, the British had an incredible influence in those countries, and were and you know the Anglo's that went out there were quite well off and well connected to politicians. But they never they were never installed there in a military sense, whereas they were in India. Um, and I think that must have something to do with it. Funnily enough, another country that we touch on and it's the only British colony I think that we touch on in the book which is Belize which I'm ashamed to say has never been in cricket around the world uh, in Wisden but in Belize they, there was a military influence uh, and a military uh, garrison in uh, British garrison in Belize as it was formerly British Honduras and their cricket is quite still quite popular in albeit a very small country um, so I think maybe there is something of that in 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 the reason for what happened there compared to compared to India. British garrisons, and particularly Australian soldiers during the war, were very unpopular with the Egyptian population. So they may oh, have right. turned against a game associated with, with the occupying military. Mm. There may, may well be something in that, yeah. Omar Sharif, as a schoolboy, was, he was of Lebanese origin, played as a schoolboy as Michel Shaloub, and he toured oh. Britain with um, Victoria College Egypt in, oh. I think it was 1951. The Egyptians had a tour. They played quite a few prestigious sides. I think they played the MCC. Mm. And he was a lifelong enthusiast for cricket. I've got a feeling that Alec Douglas Hume may have played in that game for MCC. Uh, he certainly really? played against an Egyptian touring side at Lord, uh, and I've got a feeling that he may have played in it. How fascinating. Right. In 1951, when he would have been, what, colonial secretary or something like that. That's right, he yes. would have been, uh, yeah. Junior minister. And he toured... Yeah. He toured um, of course, Alec Douglas Hume towards uh, Argentina. He did. Returning to the subject of your book mm. with Gubby Allen in the 1920s. He did. And and uh, Plum Warner was the was the man, it was the captain of that tour um, in 1926. So it was a sort of prototype for the Bodyline tour. It was almost. <laughs> um, and yes, I mean, that, that's actually probably the mo- that was an incredibly illustrious tour. If you look at the, some of the names on that tour, as you say, Warner, Allen, Douglas Hume, obviously Douglas Hume more illustrious in terms of politics than cricket, but as we say, he did have a you know a bit of a fleeting uh, first-class career. So yeah, I mean that that's a fascinating tour, and we go into great length on that in the book. Uh, and that was the first MCC tour that really went around South America uh, in 1911-12. Lord Hawke took a team to Argentina and Uruguay, but Warner's tour because the Panama Canal had since opened up, they were able to sail through the Panama Canal on the way back. Um, so they were able to go up the side of uh, the, the western side of South America. Uh, the West Coast. Um, so yeah, I mean, it is, it is an absolutely fascinating tour. And I came across a wonderful um, scrapbook by um, Lieutenant Colonel R.T. Staniforth, um, who uh, was, is, I think, is the only England captain to have been made England captain before playing county cricket because he was in the army when he was made captain. And it, the reason he was made captain for the 27-28 tour of South Africa was because of, on account of his oratory he'd shown in South America. <laughs> so he's so impressed Plum Warner that he got the got the captaincy gig. So um, yeah, fascinating little tour that, and I hope people. <laughs> How did our Lieutenant Colonel Staniforth is a new one on me? I'd never heard of him. So he How was, did he get he on? Captain, he was wicket. He was wicket keeper. Wicket keeper, yeah. <laughs> yes, he was a wicket keeper. Absolutely, yeah. So he's one of the more um, un, uh, less heralded, uh, less heralded England captains, I'd say. Mm. I think he was successful, as I remember, on that tour. I think he had a winning record. Mm. Retired with it. 
Um, Argentina, four of those matches that Douglas Hume played in, Lord Dunglass, as he then was, were, were first class, and Argentina regularly plays quite a lot of first class matches. Mm. They did, and uh, it's. I think it's a sign of quite how influential the British were there. You know, they built all the railways there, and people flooded there to work on in the Pampas. And um, yeah, I, I hope people will enjoy that story when we, when the when the book comes out. And uh, it's not really been told before, really. It was a no. pleasure. It was a pleasure to go there. And it really. I mean, I, I think there was a uh, Roland Bowen wrote a very enjoyable book, which I'm sure you've read, um, in, uh, called "Cricket: A History of Its Development Around the World." And he, he sort of posited the idea that in the 1930s, Argentina were very close to, to test status. But unfortunately, the only problem being that in the 1930s, you had to be a member of the Commonwealth to become an ICC member, so, which sort of stumbles quite well into the whole subject of cricket around the world, really. James, 104, I think, current members of the ICC. Mm-hmm. Do you know how many you've covered in wisdom over the years? And, and have you got a policy of, do, of doing them all? Uh, well, we've done we've done more than 104, but we haven't done all the ICC members, um, which is a bit of a confession. So obviously, beyond the members of the ICC, there are quite a few areas of the world that haven't got the number of players or they haven't met the membership criteria to be a member of the ICC. I mean, there was a really sort of dizzying period under Jagmohan Dalmia and Isan Mani and Malcolm Gray at the ICC. They really made an attempt to bring smaller countries into the ICC in the 1990s and early 2000s. But uh, membership criteria now is fairly strict. So there are quite a number of countries that we've had in cricket around the world, or British overseas territories, for instance. That, uh, so, for instance, Turkey, uh, I think, became a member recently, but we had them in before that. Off the top of my head, where else is there? Uh, Latvia, we did a couple of years ago. They aren't a member of the ICC, but there is cricket in Riga. So, yeah, there's, there's lots of examples where we've gone beyond what the ICC would deem to be a, uh, a member. So we've had 152, I think, just maybe a shy of 150 um, entries in cricket around the world. And we'll, we will try to keep picking up where there's interesting, interesting stories that we haven't covered before, like Belize, for instance. We, we should try and get them in in the future, definitely. What is the criteria you choose every year, James, to sort of um, choose which country is going to be covered? Well, it's a bit, it's a bit woolly, to be honest. Um, I think if you go back to the early years of cricket around the world, and it was started in 1993 by Matthew Engel in, under his editorship, one of the many excellent innovations during that fine period. Absolutely, we, yeah, yeah. He was a, he was he was brilliant in that regard, bringing sort of um, interesting and uh, colourful aspects into the almanac. I mean, I think you go back to those years. Um, I think you'd you'd see countries appearing year after year, uh, very short snippets. We've tried to take a slightly different view in that we only have a few pages to play with, and we we're trying to make the stories as as bright and as engaging as possible. So we do try and throw it around a bit more. But there's a, there's a mixture of criteria. If there's a great story that, that's not known about or not been widely reported, then we'll try and get them in. Uh, we, we quite like to have a mix of entries, you know, so we'll go to sort of post-conflict areas of maybe of Africa or uh, other parts of the world where it's been, where there's a sort of a good news story, Rwanda being one, where there's been a stadium built recently. And then we might try and go to, for instance, for instance where refugees are playing, possibly in, like, in Lebanon or in, uh, even in Serbia, where they're passing through into Europe. And then we will try and also cover countries that are pretty serious and on the climb through the, the global ranks and trying to break through into the higher sort of echelons of world cricket. And it's been quite refreshing being able to see through the years, and this probably predates my, uh, our, me and Tim, Timothy Abraham, who do cricket around the world. This does predate our time. But for instance, Afghanistan would have been in cricket around the world 10, 15 years ago. And now look where they are. 
um, Thailand mm. would have been in cricket around the world, and they still are. And look where their women's team are in in the in the T Twenty World Cup. So it's it's quite um, heartening to see some of these countries come through and really crack it. Well, no, it's a fan, you know. I think it's a wonderful thing that you do. I think it's so interesting the way that you're picking up themes which then go on to become much much bigger. Which are the teams you would point to now, the smaller teams which we haven't really taken seriously, which might be the Afghanistan of five, ten years' time? Well, I mean, that's the, that's the question the ICC are constantly asking. They're always on the lookout for the next Afghanistan. I think in women's cricket, it's possibly going to be easier for countries to break through. Um, there aren't the same critical... Uh, massive high quality sides in women's cricket than there are in men's cricket for a variety of reasons but so I think for instance the Thailand were able to do pretty well quite quickly. Um, Tell us a little bit about that Thailand story it's really fascinating it's not something you automatically associate with Thailand is women's cricket to put it mildly so how did that come about? Yeah, so Thailand are not in the Commonwealth, and they're not a. I don't think they're the British colonised there. Um, no, so don't think it's a surprising. A bit of um, yeah, it's it's very surprising. There, uh, there was um, in the nineteen sixties and seventies, probably as Thailand was opening up a bit more. Um, there were some Thais that had studied in England that went back and took cricket back to Thailand, and I think it's then the fact that obviously Thailand's become this massive tourist hotspot. Uh, where people are quite keen to go and live. Took cricket to Chiang Mai, which is obviously quite a well-known location in Thailand, and and Bangkok as well. But the thing that they've done really well compared to a lot of other countries where, unfortunately, the local populations have not been harnessed in the way they should have been, really, is that they've managed to go into schools and they've managed to go into uh, local areas and pick up local players and, and, and give them a chance in club cricket. And they've done that with boys and girls. But especially girls recently have done superbly well um, and they I think what's also helped them is that the Asian Cricket Council which is the sort of regional um, governing body for Asia does have a bit more clout than the other regions around the world and there's an awful lot of tournaments that go on in in, in, in the Asian region for the associate nations and so they had an awful lot of opportunities to play other countries uh, be that Indonesia or, or Malaysia or um, other countries of sort of that level Singapore would be another one and China would be another one that they played. And so they were able to play, come through and play regional cricket, a lot of tournament cricket, and get used to playing together as a unit. Uh, and that's how that we, we've got the likes of Natakan Chantam, who's going to be playing in the women's IPL this year. So it really is an astonishing story. Um, they play course, yeah. cricket in the way that you know we sort of want it to be played in the way, in the field. They dive around, they, you know, there's lots of high fives, and they smile all the time. And without, without wishing to sound patronising, you know, that's, that's the way... You know, many of us enjoy playing the game. So um, it, it, it's, an, it's a superb story. And um, I think I think that it, other countries need to learn, look at the model that they, that, that, that they sort of inculcated sort of 10, 15 years ago where there were no Thai women playing 15 years ago. And now there's hundreds and hundreds of them. So, yeah. Morocco was a country I visited in 2004. Um, I mm. think... Only visiting captain who's ever lost a series in Morocco. <laughs> <laughs> I took the, what was uh, your team, Richard? You took well, I, I took a team nominally representing the Lords and Commons to Morocco, and we had a terrific ah. welcome. And um, we, and we lost. We lost two matches. Oh no, we we lost one and drew the other in the um, what was then the very impressive stadium in Tangier, where they were, yes. which they'd invested in to play, and they'd played some. Pakistan played some international one-day internationals mm. in that stadium. We 
We played in front of the Wally of Tangier and everything was going very well. They were being coached by the Australian former all-rounder, um, Gary Cozier. Uh, and there was a lot of, certainly for men, there was a lot of um, cricket being played by young men. And suddenly, and you've got the story in this year's Wisdom, mm. uh, went under new management and um, it all rather fell apart. Yes, I mean, it's sort of a cautionary tale of, 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 and this is what's holding, unfortunately, holding cricket back in a lot of cases, is that the administration of the game is not always up to it. And, um, you know, you, we had a, we, that really, I suppose that encapsulates so many issues of, of the world game at that time, where a lot of money went into an emerging market. I think it was Abdur uh, Rahman Bukatir who was behind Absolutely. the stadium in, in, in the UAE, um, and he threw some serious money at, um, at that stadium. And unfortunately, now it's got goats grazing on it because it's, it's disused. So um, that was quite a, a quite a sad tale that we had in Wisdom Cricket Around the World last year from Steve Menery, who wrote that piece. Mm. Um, so we do get odd, sad tales like that. We can't just have it being all hunky-dory stories. We have to make sure that we're reflecting the, the, the sad um, parts of the game as well. But there's no reason why Morocco couldn't have been a, a great venue for cricket. You know, it's, it's right on the... You know, there's there's a, there's a stadium in La Manga in Spain, and it's got the perfect climate, very similar climate to that. And it's got you know, it's a perfect location. You know, it's near holiday locations there. It really should have. They really should have been um, quite a significant expat yeah. community, I imagine, which might have wanted to play the game. Alex War, right. of course, I think I'm right in saying that uh, who was very keen on cricket. Mm, was Alex Alec yes. War? Yeah, Alex Alec War. War yeah. I apologise. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Can you just tell me, I, I um, had a, played a little role in the development of cricket in Chad. I was, oh, wow. I was out in Chad, which is, of course, a francophone country, never, part, never associated with Britain, covering the Darfur crisis about 12, 13, 14 years ago. And uh, we had a terrific translator who, it emerged, had set up the first Chad Cricket League. He'd gone off to st- study in Lagos, fallen in love with cricket in Nigeria. He'd come back to Chad and... Uh, set up cricket and I said when I got back to London I said I'll I'll help you out so I assembled all the bats and pads boxes and whatnot I could find and several dozen cricket balls and sent them out to him as a gift from London I've got all my friends to help Mm. and um, I'm proud to say that they named the cricket league after me Uh, there was for a while a Sir Peter they they gave me a knighthood Sir Peter (laughs) Oborn cricket league in chat I don't know what's happened since can you bring us up to date well, shamefully, uh, I didn't know about this, which is an absolute shocking omission. Um, and I wasn't aware that he had a league named after you, Peter. But it's a wonderful story. Uh, I'm not surprised about some of the particulars of it in that they were struggling for equipment because we had a similar story in Mali, actually, where we, we had it in this year's Almanac again, where they just had a, suffered from a chronic shortage of equipment. And if you're, not, if you're not making lots of money and able to ship equipment in and you're working on a shoestring budget, then... All you'll get sent probably from the ICC is a box of T-shirts or something or some cones or something, sad, sad to say. They probably won't send you a load of nice bats, which is what you need. And as we know, the English willow tree doesn't grow everywhere, does it? So I'm not surprised to hear that they had a problem with, 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 with sourcing equipment. And I'm sure that equipment's still being used today. But I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that we haven't had Chad in cricket around the world, Peter. So that's, a, that's a something we should correct at some stage. Hey, I'll, I'll try and see how they're getting on out in Chad. Well, please do, yeah. The United States is potentially a huge prize for world cricket. 
But that section regularly makes very frustrating reading in Wisden. Sort of year after year, we get the same sort of narrative. We get talented mm. players, we get a lot of achievements on the field, we get um, promises and sometimes delivery of serious money. We hear about tens of millions as a potential audience. But we also seem to read all the time about administrative chaos, about player walkouts or sackings, about falling membership of um, the Cricket Association. And James, the United States has got a great tradition of running sport very efficiently as a business. And have you got any idea why this never seems to apply to American cricket? Oh, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. <laughs> Um, I mean, and also it has a, a, a great track record of history in cricket with obviously Bart King and Philadelphia. Uh, and I think the first ever cricket tour, overseas cricket tour, went to the USA with John Wisdom. John Wisdom went on that tour. Really? I didn't know that. They played the first international the United States ever. United 1844, yeah, that's right. 1844. There was a 150th anniversary, I think, fairly recently. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's... Um, I've got to say, in the last few years, they've made massive attempts to try and change the, uh, the, the problems that have been in the USA. Without getting too bogged down in the sort of administrative stuff, um, the previous governing body was suspended three times by the ICC. And so they finally expelled them um, and have installed a new governing body who just this week actually came out with a new plan to become a full member nation by 2030 uh, to host a world uh, event, an ICC world event, so probably a T20 World Cup, with the West in- co-hosted with the West Indies by 2023, I think and to really install cricket as a major sport in the USA. I mean, that sounds incredibly ambitious, but there's an incredible spread of cricket across the USA. I mean, you go to almost every major city, there'll be cricket there. You know, we, we know all about the sort of Hollywood Cricket Club in LA, but there's far more... Peter Rumble, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, and and um, I believe that the two CEOs of... Well, the CEOs of Google and the CEO of Microsoft are both Indian Americans uh, and both mad about cricket. Uh, Microsoft Crikey, building... that's a very good start, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Microsoft are building a stadium in, in, in Washington State um, on their campus. So, And I, I actually met um, a chap who claimed to be building 10 cricket stadiums in the USA himself. So there's an incredible um, willingness to, to do big things in the USA. I think the problem is it's never been sort of, it's never been stitched together and under a sort of reliable umbrella um, with good governance. So I think one, now that the USA seem to have got the umbrella for that uh, in place, hopefully they'll start going places because the ICC are desperate for the USA to qualify for World Cups. Um, and there's lots of talented Indian uh, or Asian extraction players there, lots of talented West Indian players, especially in Florida. So if if only cricket can start to properly install itself among the local population, then it can it can only go leaps and bounds, really. In terms of competing with other sports in the United States, of course, the, the big thing cricket has to do is to offer a you know, pathway into college, mm, isn't it? And professional absolutely. sports, because there's so much linkage between schools and colleges and um, you know, sport, American football, baseball, basketball, mm. isn't there? And it's noticeable that in the, in the plan that the new governing body, I think called USA Cricket, have just announced... I, one thing that didn't that, that didn't go unnoticed to me is that they've started borrowing terms from American sports. So they're talking about a T20 franchise league called Major League Cricket. They're talking about the the rung underneath that being Minor League Cricket, and they're talking about a college program. They're talking about a rookie league. So they're borrowing from American term, sporting terminology, and they're hoping that that has more of a cut through with Americans. And they could be right because you know some of cricket's um, terminology is a little bit bizarre to people from other other you know if you're not from a commonwealth background it may be slightly bizarre at times so 
Um, Could I just observe that I find quite a lot of American terminology rather bizarre at times? Well, <laughs> there you go. I, 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 yes, I know what you mean. But um, I think maybe in the USA, they, they perhaps they need to cut through to, to local people with that. So, yeah, so. I mean, you know, it, it's it, let, let's hope that they're starting to get to grips with those issues. And, and if they build those stadiums, and famously, that was the line in Field of Dreams, wasn't it? If, if you build it, they will come. So um, who knows? What are the governance problems? I mean, I don't, again, just very briefly, I'm quite mystified by why there's, what are these governance problems in the States they've been Well, I, I think, I've got to be a bit careful what I say, but then I suppose they've been kicked out, so maybe not. But <laughs> I think the problem is that um, it was effectively an amateur, an amateurish setup in a country that was on the cusp of, of, of needing to be a bit more professional. Um, and I think that's the case, that's the problem in a lot of uh, smaller or associate nations is that, you need to start using modern corporate governance recommendations and, and practices, and they weren't really being applied in the USA, I don't think, with the best of intentions. And the, the previous governing body were had all sorts of leagues falling out with them. There was a there was a breakaway organisation, and the the ICC express, expressly prohibit two governing bodies claiming to represent cricket in a country, and that's what happened in the USA. So I think that was one of the reasons why um, they abolished the previous governing body in America. There's always a big risk with minority sports of sort of individualists or even eccentrics sort of getting control of it, isn't there? Yes. In, in Netherland, the novel, the um, there's you mm. know the eccentric West Indian who's trying to um, revive American cricket as a sort of goal of personal and national redemption, you know. And there are there are people like that in well in all sorts of my, all sorts of minority sports. You must say that had Donald Trump played cricket, just imagine how much better the world would be. If Donald Trump gets re-elected, we can say goodbye. I think the United States can say goodbye to the hope of co-hosting a, an international T20 tournament. I mean, but Trevelyan noted, didn't he, G.K. Trevelyan, the historian, that if the French had played cricket in the 18th century, then the French Revolution That's would right. never have happened. And, it, and it, the current moral crisis which America is undergoing one of the solutions might be the ICC, if the, if the ICC plan works and cricket becomes a great game in the States. Well, I, I, agree, I agree with you, certainly, Peter, that, that, that cricket brings different people. I know it sounds a bit woolly and a little bit sort of um, a little bit utopian, but it does. Cricket does bring people together in a way that other sports don't. And you see from uh, from cricket, you know, you play with all different types of people. And I, I think that there, there, there may be something in that if the USA it can really take off and become a some, a tool of cohesion um, but maybe I don't know maybe that's wishful thinking but you would hope that that's the power of cricket um, uh, but yes um, you mentioned Netherland there um, uh, Richard and anyone who's interested in learning more about US cricket should probably read that book because it's a lovely book it's a great book again Peter and I have played at Staten Island at its main location great fun uh, in, game interesting just on the US another, the, the other thing that came out of that document that they've just relaunched is that they're planning they, they're throwing their weight behind cricket uh, a cricket tournament at the LA Olympics in 2028. And um, unfortunately, the wow. Olympic issue, wow. which it's been the first topic brought up by the Associate Nations at every ICC annual conference since 2009, but unfortunately the full members won't vote it through um, for their own selfish reasons. And if cricket can get over that and get cricket into the Olympics, even if it's a T10 tournament and it's a bit of a, a, bit of a thrash, the money that will come to a lot of the country, you know, proud Olympic nations will be massive um, and it will do wonders mm. for the game in the most part, I'm sure. So hopefully... Money and the visibility and the TV coverage. 
Absolutely. So, yeah, that's something I'd certainly say that the world game needs to get sorted. Moving from a big country, the United States, um, to a rather small country, James, I noticed in the latest ICC rankings that St Helena, with a population of around 4,500, is ranked above China. I wondered if Wisden had ever covered St Helena or whether it's got any plans to do so. I'm happy to say we've covered it several times, um, and it's it, it's obviously a source of much hilarity to most people that it's above China in the in the new ICC World T20 rankings. Uh, apart from probably the ICC, who plunged a lot of time and effort into trying to get cricket to be t- to take off in China. Um, but yes, we've covered St Helena several times. Um, I, I suppose it falls into the category of one of those um, parts of the world that was obviously a, a, a British territory that was of great significance in the days of of, of, of boat travel rather than plane travel. And so uh, it was an important stopping point on the way to South Africa, I think. And um, and yeah, so cricket made its found its way to St Helena. Um, and they have one ground in St Helena called Francis Plain. And they have several teams that, that play there. They've played in ICC Africa tournaments. They made their way there. It, it took £24,000 in, in, uh, in 2012 to get them to ICC Africa Division 3 that they raised on the island themselves to get the team there. And they went by boat, I presume, didn't they? To... They went by the Royal Mail ship St Helena, so uh, it, it, wonderfully. Um, and um, the, uh, one fascinating thing about France's plane, I, I suppose it's sort of a, a slightly dark uh, matter, um, quite a grim sort of uh, underbelly of, of British colonialism, I suppose, in a way. But there was, um, there, there's a story that in 1886, um, there was a slave that was fielding in a, in a, in a match, and he... As he was trying to catch the ball on the edge of the field, he fell off the cliff um, and died, uh, falling into rocks underneath uh, the ground uh, on the precipitous location that they play. And the le- local legend has it in St Helena that, that that rock turns red every year on the anniversary of that, that, that match. So um, whether that's true or not, it's an interesting little, um, interesting little subplot of, 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 I suppose, life at the time. Um, and um, but yeah, the St Helena is, is is something that we often look at, and um, yeah, um, and it didn't escape my attention when Priti Patel announced sorry to get into politics, but when Priti Patel um, was supposed to have said that they were thinking about putting a a camp on Ascension Island, we did um, we we did, we did that immediately. Our thoughts turned to looking at cricket in Ascension Island, and, and Ascension were in Wisden in the mid nineties, so we might we might resuscitate that one again. So that was a slave. He takes a catch on the boundary and then topples backwards over the cliff. I believe what so. A, what a what a, prof- what a what a sort of metaphor for so many different things in life. That's right. In particular, the the fate of the slaves. Now, what I would um, I would love to. There's another South Atlantic island, isn't there? Uh, the Falklands, where yes. Richard didn't you uh, do the Wisdom's report once for in the global cricket. Indeed, I'm responsible for the entry in the Falklands in the 1999 Almanac. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd never been there, but I had a lot of contacts there, and they gave me the, the thrilling result of the match between the Governor's Eleven and the Forces Eleven. A thrilling one-run win for the Governor's Eleven. The contest went on is played in the world's southernmost cricket field, which I think possibly is overtaken by Antarctica. You had a section on Antarctica in this year's wisdom. Anyway, but then it was the southernmost cricket field in the world, the Mount Pleasant Oval. Contest is played for a handsome trophy mounted on rock, representing a penguin's beak emerging from an egg. The oval can hold the entire population of the Falkland Islands, 4,000. The matting wicket traditionally favours bowlers, but only when they have the wind behind them. 
those bowling into the wind regularly struggle to reach the opposite end. <laughs> Wonderful. These were your immortal words. <laughs> These were your words from your... Did they? Did Wisden pay you for this uh, immortal No, they gave word? me a free copy of um, <laughs> that year's, which is uh, remuneration enough. Yep. That's very noble. <laughs> um, how's, how's the situation on the Falklands now, James? Well, cricket is... They're an ICC member, so they have played in, in South American competition, in ICC America's competition. Uh, whether they play or not tends to depend on whether Argentina are playing or not. If Argentina are playing, then they probably... Falklands probably won't get a game. But uh, if Argentina aren't playing at that specific level, then they probably will get a game. Well, so there's not a Argentina versus Falklands... Um... Uh, cricket match, and just as there is in England, obviously our England Argentina matches have assumed a sort of massive significance. Uh, I don't think it would be allowed. Um, I, I did note that during the start of this coronavirus uh, crisis, that the president had a, a mask bearing the uh, silhouette of the Falkland Islands on. So I don't think, or Las Malvinas, I should say, in his case. Um, so I don't think um, I don't think that's on on the horizon anytime soon. Um, but they have played in, in, in an ICC Americas competition. I think their kit got lost in Punta Arenas in Chile when they were playing last time. And they were having to get up to Mexico, I think, to play. And uh, all the way up to Mexico. And um, unfortunately, their kit got left behind in Punta Arenas in the frozen wastelands of Tierra del Fuego. So um, they've had a few hiccups on the way. Um, and they also played, funnily enough, in the Falklands, uh, the Falklands International Tournament, which involved uh, the Falkland CC from Berkshire the Falkland CC from Scotland and the Falkland CC from the Falkland Islands or Falkland Islands team. So a tripartite they, tournament. Yep. Indeed. So um, it, it, as, as Richard says, it, it's windy there. Matches often get winded off. Um, and um, I think even, I have a feeling that during the, um, uh, during either, I can't remember if it was the British advance or the Argentine advance on the Falklands in the, in the Falklands war, the, 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 one of the cricket grounds did get bombed during the advance. Um, and I think that's why they play at the at the current ground now. Um, so, was it the yeah. Brits? Was it the Brits or the Argentines who bombed the cricket ground? This sort of ultimate act of sacrilege. Well, I'm, I you, you'd like to think it wasn't the British. The it must be the Argentines, you'd have thought. But um, I don't yeah. think the Argentines did any bombing of the Falklands because they just invaded it. Well, indeed. I mean, even the Germans during World resistance. War Two never bombed Lords, did they? I mean, they were. Well, they um, sent a flying bomb over it. They sent a V one <laughs> over it, which stopped play. There you go. So yes, um, uh, it, the, 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 so yeah, I mean, there, there is cricket in the Falklands. It's obviously, you know, there, there aren't many, there aren't many people on the Falklands, but it's it's one of the major sports that they play, and it's it's their such as summer is that down there, it's their summer sport, I suppose. So hopefully, we'll see them again in competition at some stage. But opportunities for the real, really, really small ICC members, such as the Falklands, are have diminished in the last ten years. So to, the opportunities to play tournaments, so uh, they'll need a bit of um, benevolence from higher up in order to. Uh, to be playing in tournaments again. Richard mentioned Antarctica. There's a lovely book by Harry Thompson, Penguins Stopped Play, but I wasn't to... Tell us about cricket on Antarctica. It seems fundamentally implausible. Well, uh, <laughs> they play quite regularly, as we as we discovered in... Um, as we um, covered in Wisdom this year, they play at the Australian uh, Casey base, I think it's called, um, and they... And, and they and obviously they play in certain under certain strictures, <laughs> um, and you know the, the wicket and the, and the ball have to be. Um, you, know, you couldn't play with a cricket ball, I don't think, on 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 the on the on the Antarctic um, ground. Um, but uh, funnily enough, it cropped up in in a recent obituary that we were doing in this month's Cricketer magazine because John Reed, uh, the great uh, mm. former New Zealand all rounder, he played in the first ever match at the South Pole. 
Um, so not just in Antarctica, but at the South Pole itself. Uh, and the ball, he hit the ball into a passing snowdrift and the ball was lost. So um, that was the end of the game. Uh, but uh, So that was in 1969 that match was played. Uh, and since then, the Australians who are stationed in Antarctica have, have, have kept up the... Um, have kept up the tradition, um, and I think they have. They swig a few. Uh, they swig a few gulps of their own home brew after the game, and um, they just play such as they can in, in, in the circumstances and the conditions. Matthew Hancock is very proud of having attempted to play at the North Pole. He went on next. Plays a lot of cricket. I've played with him and against him. We're talking here about the health, health secretary. secretary. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Uh, Matthew Hancock, the health secretary, has played a lot of cricket and he's very proud on his CV of having attempted, been on an exhibition which was attempting to play a match at the North Pole. Uh, it was stopped by frostbite, but he got pretty far north. He played a match at sort of well north of 80 degrees. He may wish he was back there now rather than having to cope with the COVID crisis. Yes, and that, that was in wisdom as well, actually. I think that, that escapade, um, that was, I think that was at least 10 years ago now, wasn't it? I have a feeling, but... Yes. Um, before yeah. his political career, certainly. Yep. Yeah. Tell us about your people who send you these wonderful reports. Uh, Richard Verity and David Gray are two of them from the Lebanon. Mm. They're, they're, they've all often got very remarkable stories of their own. Yes, um, and I think it takes a certain sort of person to plunge hours and hours and hours, days and days of your time to try and inculcate cricket in a country. Um, but I think with in Richard's case, uh, and I've met him once or twice, um, you know, they I think they saw that the, if, if if people don't know about the, the story of Shatila, this um, uh, mm. this refugee town part of Beirut, really, um, which started off as a Palestinian uh, refugee uh, settlement uh, in 1949, I think, but has since morphed into more of a Syrian uh, refugee area since the crisis there. And okay. it's where that awful atrocity the massacre uh, took place in was it 1980 early 1980s i think it would have been 82 i think yeah, yeah. by the phalangists yeah um so i think um uh, i think it's fair to say that that was a is a depressed community and I, I have a feeling the police don't even go in much um it's pretty much run by by gang uh, gang warfare really so uh, richard verity being a cricket lover from uh, from london um had had the chance to go over there and, and run a, a project, and he chose cricket. And um, I think he saw that the, there's an, there's an astroturf pitch in in in, in Shatila. I think that's the only sporting complex they have, um, an astroturf football pitch. And he thought, let's get the local kids, uh, mainly Syrian uh, refugees, but others as well. Let's get them involved in in cricket. Let's teach them the beauty of cricket and see what human um, uh, consequences it has. And I think. I think it's it, it seems to have worked really well so far. Um, we had a lovely piece last last year. Um, glorious about that piece. Project. Glorious yeah. piece. It was it was one of, it was one of the ones that sort of lifts the heart a bit, really. Um, and um, and uh, there are similar. I think there are similar um, projects going on in Jordan um, uh, with other Syrian refugees uh, by uh, by other charities. So um, there's still hope. There's still a chance that cricket could take off in the Middle East one day. Who knows? I mean, famously, the first ever. I think the first ever overseas match was in was in Aleppo. I think is that right? I've got a feeling. Um, so, in in the in, so yeah. Um, who knows? Maybe one day. That's absolutely fascinating. And so maybe is there, is there is is Syria itself part of the ICC? No. Um, I mean, no. Oli Broom, who you may have read it. You remember him? He cycled to the ashes in 2010-11, um, yeah. and he was behind the Rwandan 
uh, he he really launched. He's done wonderful things in Rwanda, haven't they? That's right. And uh, he cycled through Syria on the way to, and this is just before the Arab Spring, and he cycled through Syria on the way to Australia. Uh, and he did play cricket there, but I think a very impromptu game, you know, involving dustbins and so on. I, I don't, as far as I'm aware, there aren't any at the moment. Uh, I don't know. If, I imagine there would have been before. No, but what you're suggesting is that the, Sir, the Syrian diaspora, which is now taking on massive dimensions, yeah. the Syrians are learning cricket. Well, thanks to the incredible efforts of Mr. Verity in in, in Lebanon and elsewhere. Yeah. Absolutely right, and um, who knows? You know, football is king in most in most parts of the world, but um, we, we've got to give cricket a go. We've got to, and I think the idea being that cricket, although some people get pretty annoyed about the hackneyed phrases about the spirit of cricket and so on and the fair play and so on, but I think there's something in that. And if we can, if we can take it to um, you know refugee communities and 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 really really inculcate it, then it, it, if it can do some good, then why not? James, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you, and I wish we could have had many more hours to go through perhaps many more countries, uh, because I'm sure you've got them on the roster. Thank you very, very much for joining us, and perhaps you'll you'll join us again, and we'll go, and we will be able to go through some more of them and um, more about what um, makes cricket a success all over the world or a failure. And I must say, I'm really looking forward to reading your book, published in April next year, Evita Burnt Down Our Pavilion. It's a history of cricket in Latin America. It sounds, we're hearing a bit about it at the start of the podcast, it sounds completely gripping. James, again, it's been wonderful talking to you. hope we'll have a chance to talk to you again some other time. But for now, it's goodbye from me, Richard Heller in South East London. And it's goodbye from me, Peter Oborn in Wiltshire, where it stopped raining. It's on its way to London. (laughs) Goodbye and thanks for having me.